The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, stop looking for aliens and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 182 with guest Dan Cerulli, recorded live June 23rd, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net. Training developers to work smarter, and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Data Dynamics, makers of ActiveReports.net. Simple, powerful, and cost-effective reporting for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.datadynamics.com. Support is also provided by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers, online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, just back from his latest abduction, Carl Franklin. Thank you, thank you very much. Thanks, Jeff, and welcome to another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. I'm Carl Franklin here in New London, Connecticut, right in between... Boston and New York. Boston, where we just had tech ed last week. And out there in British Columbia, Vancouver to be exact, my partner in crime, Richard Campbell. Hi, Richard. Hey, man. Great to be home. Yes, great to be home through the magic of radio. (laughs) Uh, So what have you been doing? Well, you know, just slugging our way through. We've uh, we've uh, had a busy times. You know, the basement's still a mess. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, it'll be finished uh, before the summer is over. I'm supposed to have a house guest, and my guest room is full of boxes. Uh, that's life. Yeah. I'm uh, getting getting back in, getting settled, writing some code, and uh, doing some more podcasting stuff, and making a lot of background music because we're working on a new. A uh, new podcast featuring Mr. Rory Blythe, which is going to be Rory reading his uh, some of his best material with uh, sort of music beds in the background. And if you think Rory's blog is funny, you should listen to him read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, Rory's blog is definitely funny, yeah, so it should stuff. be great. So he's he's going to be here very soon, and we're going to be working on that. But anyway, Richard, you run uh, SETI at home work units, don't you? 
Now, I used to, uh, since they switched over, turned off the classic version, I shut it all down. It made my office a good five degrees cooler when I did that, too. <laughs> and I, I remember you used to joke that you had a water-cooled coffee warmer connected to the tubes in your uh, PC that's water-cooled. And you said anytime your coffee got cold, you just ran a SETI at home work unit. <laughs> oh, yeah. It worked, too. I mean, it's amazing when the processor working full bore how hot the machine gets. Although the machine that got the hottest was the one with the dual video cards. Well, yeah, it's it's interesting because uh, our guest today is Dan Cerulli, who's put together, his company has put together a grid computing framework for .NET. Let me introduce him now. Uh, Dan Cerulli is an experienced software designer, developer, and manager with 16 years experience developing commercial Windows applications since Windows 2.0. Let us all pray. He has been involved <laughs> with all aspects of product design, development, customer implementation, and support. As director of products for the Digipede Network, Dan draws upon his experiences both as a software engineer and a manager of multiple customer implementation projects. He was a founder and director of development at Energy Interactive, or EI an energy information systems and services company that developed N-tier web-based and desktop applications. He also spent a year as a tour manager for a platinum-selling rock band. Dan holds a bachelor's degree in computer science from UC Berkeley and writes about grid computing and Windows at his blog at westcoastgrid.blogspot.com. Welcome, Dan. Well, thank you very much, Carl. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thank you. Glad to hear the music's coming out. I got to tell you that, uh, you know, we get a lot of emails from people who, um, you know, have suggestions for shows or they want to be on the show. And, you know, typically when somebody's got something to promote, um, you know, we, we turn a blind eye towards that, especially if there isn't any sort of value to the, to the listener. But this is such a unique thing and it's so cool and, and hasn't been done before. Um, and the fact that you're offering a, uh, a free developer edition that uh, I just thought it made a perfect sense. Well, I'm, I'm glad you did. Uh, as, a, as a developer myself, this is the most exciting product I've ever worked with. It's, it's really cool stuff. It does cool things. It enables cool things. And uh, I'm glad you guys thought so, too. So this is a grid computing framework, right? That is correct. So tell us about it a little bit. You know, grid computing has been around for a long time, and really as, as soon as people figured out how to hook computers together, they wanted to make them work together. Yeah. And uh, in the late 90s, the uh, term grid computing started coming up, and meaning grid computing, they, they meant lots of machines working together. Yeah. And there have been a lot of different projects doing that, but all of them have come from very kind of academic uh, orientation, uh, Unix or or penguin-based operating systems, mm. basically. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing that's been aimed at, at using, really, Windows machines natively. Yeah. Uh, and nothing that's been accessible from the Windows platform. And we should draw a distinction between grid computing and, and uh, clustering, which is typically done at one site, right? Well, clustering is, is not only typically done at one site, but it's typically done with a fixed number of homogeneous machines. Yeah. You know, the symmetrical gear is important in, in clustering. That's right. You know how many machines are there. You know how many are working. You can say, you know, I want computer four to do this right now. Yeah. And I've already put these files on computer seven, so it can do that. Uh, the big difference in grid and clustering is that grid tends to be heterogeneous, and it tends to be a lot more dynamic. Yeah. 
Yeah, and and uh, since it uses a common network protocol, you know TCP/IP, and you need some sort of API to to go across TCP/IP that that abstracts away all of those details. So you're not typically after the kind of performance that you would get in a cluster. the The idea is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea is to take chunks of data that require a lot of processing and uh, ship them off to as many pieces on the grid as you possibly can so that they can use their uh, resources and then report back, you know, the resultant set. That, that, that's a, a very good description of it. And, and that's been the idea kind of behind grid computing uh, from, the, from the, the outset. Mm. And what we've done is we've taken that model and made it very accessible to the .NET developer. So .NET developers don't have to learn a bunch of uh, crazy MPI or uh, crazy threading models in order to take advantage of lots of machines. Very cool. Now, let's say, let, before we start uh, talking about, you know, this, you know, a little bit of the implementation of what we can expect, let's pick a, um, a, an example that we uh, can all agree on. You know, SETI at Home is a, is a really popular grid computing application. And for those who don't know what that is, it's the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence uh, if you've seen the movie Contact, that was the Jodie Foster's group, was the SETI group, wasn't it? I believe she yeah. was doing some sort of monitoring of the sky. Yeah, so they were basically taking SETI at home is this thing that kicks in as a screensaver. So you basically, it, it happens, you know, during your downtime, and it just communicates with the mothership and and, you know, crushes data and then puts it back. And I guess it's analyzing data that comes in from... Uh, telescopes or audio or video telescopes, isn't that right, Richard? One or the other. Yeah, uh, City at Home is really driven off of Arecibo, which is that huge dish in uh, Puerto Rico, mm. and the SETI team gets a few months a year where they're scanning a relatively narrow band of the sky mm. and they're collecting all this data. And, you know, SETI at Home is a huge success story in the sense that they collected this huge amount of data and then sent it out into the world, essentially. Every unit processed several times so that nobody could could uh, fake any little green men signals. Yeah. And they actually ran out of data. There were so many machines signed up for this that they ultimately didn't have anything left to process. And so what they did was they wrote more complex algorithms... Huh. And then resent every work unit out again wow. Wow, to reprocess in more detail. Wow! And then ran out again. Huh. So now they actually the whole thing's changed. That's why I gave it up. Was the whole boink thing, which is they realized. Well, what we've really got here is this. I think they had four million machines signed up at one point. That's insane. It's the world's largest they, computer. Yeah. Yeah. World's largest computer. So they've now pulled in all these other complex tasks that can be gridded, like protein folding and so forth, so that they can share the wealth, so to speak, uh, using this mass processing capabilities. Well, let's use this example of, you know, this SETI at home stuff. I guess the example doesn't really matter, but what, what does a developer have to look forward to in, uh, in setting this up? How easy is it? So it, for, for developer, it's very, very easy to set up. Uh, the, the whole system was designed by people who have done lots of uh, development on the Windows platform. And so it was aimed at .NET developers. And so as a developer, what, what you have to do is pick a class and, and designate it for remote execution. Okay. And that's uh, very simple to do. You do it through a derivation. You derive from a, from a class that, that knows how to distribute itself. 
So when you instantiate uh, objects from that class, you basically hand them to the server. It's done via web services calls, but it's done uh, transparently. You just make one call hmm. called a submission. Those objects that you created are then serialized and streamed to the server. Uh, if there are any assemblies that go with them, those will go too. So say your, your class is implemented in an executable that requires a couple of DLLs. Hmm. Then that executable and the DLLs will get streamed up once. The executable, I mean, the, the objects themselves will go up, and then they will get distributed uh, across your network. So do you, do you program two parts of it then, the server and then the client? Is that the idea? People implement it different ways. Often, uh, if you're doing something uh, that's fairly compact, you've got the same executable or DLL running on both ends. Yeah. Uh, if you're putting it behind, say, a graphical user interface or a web server, well, then you definitely have different components running on the, on the front and the distributed end. Okay. So you, you, you build this class yourself, or there are methods that you have to implement or events that you have to handle or an interface uh, that you have to implement, for example? Yeah, the, the, way, the way we actually do it is, is derived from a class okay. that, that knows how to distribute itself. Uh, some people just build a little wrapper that, that derives a class they are, that contains a class they already have. Okay. So you, you just instantiate those objects on your, you know, whatever, the calling machine or the client machine. Yeah. And uh, the, the product, DigiPeed Network, handles the rest. The distribution, managing any files that need to move in order to instantiate those objects, execute them, re- executing them on those remote machines, and then streaming them back to you. And everything's done through web services, so you obviously have, uh, you know, turned those uh, DLLs and assemblies into base64 strings or something and pushing those through the web service, I, I guess? Right, yeah. All the, all the communication is web services. It's transparent to the developer. The that's, developer doesn't have to worry about that, but yeah, all the communication is, is web services. That's really good because, you know, in a lot of these applications, they all, like even SETI at home requires you to open a port, I think, Richard, doesn't it? No. No? No, it was pretty painless configuration. It it, it cuz it I it's your client that drives your data, right? The client mm-hmm. fires up, goes off and says, "Is there any data for me?" loads it down, executes it and then pushes it out when it's done. So it uses so, HTTP? You know, the, uh yeah. Oh, cool. And so in that sense it's, SETI is very uh client driven. The hmm. the server can't order the workstations to do anything. But that's an interesting thought, too. You know, it sounds an awful lot like this library is oriented on this independent client model. Uh, are you seeing implementations that are more in-house, where they, they've got a whole bunch of machines they don't want to write the plumbing? You're, you're exactly right. Actually, almost every implementation, other than some, some academic stuff that we've done, the commercial impl- implementations have all been using in-house machines. Uh, yeah. We don't have clients who are interested in... in uh, sending out their secret financial data to run on your laptop, for example. Yeah. They're, they're using this. Uh, <laughs> a lot of people are, are actually using it on dedicated hardware. They're not, they're not necessarily scavenging from their desktops. They've got a wall of servers. They just want a way to uh, use those servers in .NET effectively. And so they use this, this toolkit. You know, one thing I could have used it for was when we were creating the .NET Rocks movie. We were using uh, Adobe Premiere on the machines of the day. And uh, applying some of those uh, transforms, um, you know, that plugins that do video processing, they take a long time to render. And uh, I actually ended up doing a makeshift uh, grid here just by running, um, you know, connecting remotely to every machine in the classroom and putting in uh, little pieces of the movie and uh, loading up Premiere 
and and uh, and doing it that way. But I can imagine that that would be a really good um, uh, application for it. Do, do you know of any video production and video rendering um, uh, companies that are using it? We are talking to uh, at least one company that produces uh, video software. It's, it's not uh, the one you mentioned. It's another one. Mm-hmm. And they are uh, in the process of deciding how they're going to do this, uh, how they want to be able to take advantage of lots of machines. And, and so they're, they're looking at our framework as the way to do that because it, it frees up their developers from having to go write a, a bunch of, of code that enables you to do this. Yeah. The bottom line is if somebody's committed to an application like that and they just want it to run faster, sometimes you just want to throw horsepower at it, more machines. And if there's a way that you can incorporate into your application an ability to say, well, if you just want to throw 20 machines at it, push this button. Yeah, that's and right. And one of the, the advantages of, of a grid architecture, and you, you talked about a client-driven architecture, and you were, you were right on, is that it is very client, and, and we call that the agent. That's the thing that's running on all the, the remote machines. And an agent-driven architecture is great because when you do want to add more horsepower, you just add agents to your grid. Yeah. The, the system configures itself. You don't need to do anything to set up those nodes. The system knows how to set those up. So hmm. when you need more horsepower, you just add more agents. Now, if I build a new machine, I guess I've got to get the agent on there? Is it just I hit a web page or something? There's a couple different ways to do that. Yeah, we set up this, the server, which is running in, on, in your enterprise, has a web page. You hit that web page, and you can install the agent right from there. Nice. Uh, you can also, if you're, if you're uh, we have a silent install, if you're baking up lots of images, say, and you want to be able to push things out, uh, that's how we do things in-house, and that's how some of our larger customers do it. They, they push a silent install out. You know, it almost seems like you're sort of embracing the remoting metaphor, but you're using web services. Right. And, and remoting is certainly, you know, has, has made this possible for us. We use .NET remoting on, on the machine itself mm-hmm. uh, to, to do a lot of the communication. Yeah. Um, and, you know, .NET in general is just a, such a great toolkit for, for the developer. Amen, we couldn't brother. have written what we wrote without .NET. Yeah. Um, and certainly it makes it possible for people to communicate between machines. Um, the advantage of, of, of using a, a grid infrastructure rather than just do .NET remoting is all of the flexibility you gain. Like I said, you just add an agent to your network. It's going to be able to run all of your grid jobs. Yeah. And it also gives you a lot of uh, other features that you probably wouldn't write. You know, what happens when a node fails? Mm. You know, do you, it, the, a grid system will, will detect that, will reassign any work to another node, Whereas if you're if you're kind of writing stuff manually using remoting, well, you got to write all that code. Yeah, and I guess that's you know that's why you have a grid framework is to uh, to deal with all of those things that could happen. Yeah, and and all that stuff indeed does happen, of course. Yeah. Now I got to imagine another part of this has got to be on the agent end, not consuming the whole machine with this background task if you don't want it to. I mean. Well, yeah, of course, and that depends on, on, on your infrastructure that you're running on. And the way we handle that is that you can set up machines in different ways. You can set them up to be dedicated and say, you know, this is a, this is a cluster node. I want, it, I want it processing grid jobs all the time. You can this also, is all it does. You can also set up machines to run only on a certain schedule. So if you have servers that are busy during the day, you might say you can work on the grid at night. And then, of course, mm, right. you can set them up as, as you might a desktop machine and say you can run all the time using only, you know, at low, low priority, or 
you can run only when the screensaver kicks in, only when the machine goes idle can you run grid jobs. So it's not just a cycle scavenging model then? Well, the, the architecture is essentially cycle scavenging because it's agent-driven, mm-hmm. but you know, different customers use it different ways. Sure. And, and customers that have the budget buy dedicated hardware. If, yeah. if, you know, if they've got the money, that, that's great. They, they can do that. But right. we have other customers who just don't do that, and it's all uh, cycle scavenging off, off desktops mm. and servers. Wow. Very cool. It's fun stuff. Now, you, I, we sort of talked around this so far, but I guess the main challenge here is, for a developer is, does my project make sense for grid computing? Yeah, I'm interested in how you rate that, you know, that problem of how do I evaluate my project to say I can use grid computing here? You know, if I can if I can preempt your answer, if you were to ask me, I would say if it takes more, if it takes less time to transmit data from one computer to another than it does to have that data processed and, you know, transmit it and come back. You're a very wise man. That's that's one of the most important <laughs> one of the most important things is is how much computation will you do uh, for the amount of data that that needs to be moved. Right, because uh, as you were talking, I was thinking, okay, well, I have, you know, I, I could say like pr- processing with noise reduction can you can do like an hour long show in maybe I don't know ten minutes, but for me to move that data to another machine and have it w- work on that machine would be far. It would take too long. You might as well just do it on one machine. So that's not a right. good... Yeah. We, we, you mentioned video rendering before, and we, of course, have done a, a lot of experiments in-house. Mm. And we had an intern set up a bunch of video rendering at some point. Sweet. And what we found, we have, we have different networking in our, in our office, and we found that if we did this on the gigabit Ethernet, it was great. It yeah. sped everything up. Everything was fantastic. If we did it over on the 100 megabit network, it actually took longer to move and did not become worthwhile yeah. to, uh, the, to move The movement things. time took longer than the processing time. Right. Exactly. So it, it, it's really dependent on the application. Now, most applications don't have as much data that needs to be moved as video rendering. That's mm. a, you know, there's a lot of data there. Right. More uh, of it's often, processing. Often you move just a very small amount of data. Yeah. We have, we have customers who uh, use use a grid behind their website. People who have implemented web services that uh, have some kind of long-running calls, when, when, when people make a call into the web service, it can run for quite a few number of seconds. Mm. Uh, in that case, the only data that needs to move across the grid is kind of like a session ID, basically. Yeah. You know, here, this, this hit just got, you know, go ahead and process it. Mm. Then one of the machines on the grid does everything it needs to do, and it might be working on a database, you know, right, pulling data out of say, database, doing yeah. some processing, and then returning it. So in that case, on the grid, you're only moving a tiny bit of data, but you've moved a lot of CPU load off of your web server. Right. A lot of anything that requires analysis, which is usually working, just number crunching smaller pieces of data. Right. Mm. You know, network load balancing is really good for distributing web hits across a, a cluster, but it's not, it doesn't do any CPU load balancing. Yeah. So if you're, if you're, uh, Serving up either really quick web service calls or, or HTML, uh, network load balancing is great. But if you have one process that's going to run for four or five or 20 or 30 seconds, that's going to screw up your NLB. Now, would it be a wise idea for you guys to embrace Indigo at this point, or is your transport so baked in and working so fine that you really don't have to worry about it? That's a fantastic question. You should be a professional at this. Hey, as a uh, matter of fact, I am. We can't wait for uh, WCF <laughs> to come out. Um, it's, it's 
really cool. We have a, a separate layer for the transport, mm-hmm. and we are uh, already have done some stuff in house and has seen some some good performance, some networking performance improvements. Wow! And so we're excited for that uh, because it, it just makes you know the calls are all smaller, the calls are right. all faster, and as as we alluded to before, the more efficient you can get that transport. The, yeah. the broader the uh, universe of topics you can take on with this problem. I guess the transport is sort of a basic overhead to using grid computing. This is your cost, is that moving data around. Right. Actually, one of the, one of the most important papers in, in distributed computing was written by a fellow named Jim Gray at uh, Microsoft Research. Who, uh, Microsoft Research is a great organization. Yeah. They do really, really cool and interesting things. And Jim Gray has a great paper where he really analyzed, you know, the amount of CPU time, number of CPU cycles you have to spend per byte to moved to make it worthwhile. It's, it's, a, it's a great read for anyone. Jim Gray, just is, Google his name, you'll find it. Is Jim the guy behind Avalanche? I don't believe he is, but I can't say for sure. You know what I mean? The Avalanche, it's a research project. Um, it's essentially BitTorrent++. Yeah, yeah, I do know Avalanche. No, I don't think that's one of his, but I could be wrong. Yeah. I could be wrong. Great stuff coming out of Microsoft Research. I agree. They do great stuff. They really do. Hey, um, what about compression? Do you utilize compression at all in, you know, in moving these streams, or does it not make sense since uh, ultimately everything has to be printable or Base64 to move through a web service? We're, yeah, we're not using compression at all. We're letting uh, web service calls and, and .NET handle all of the... Uh, handle all of the, the moving of the bits. Yeah. I imagine if you were using Indigo and, uh, you know, uh, um, a note, what did you call it, a, a module? What is, what, are, what are they called at the client? We have agents. Agents. Yeah. yeah. If the agent decided to use, um, you know, a non-standard port, for example, they might be able to communicate, uh, th- you know, through a binary interface. Well, as I, uh, as I alluded to before, sometimes our, our customers move only a very small amount of data through our system and then and then might be doing their own moving the, the distributed application might know I need to contact a certain server and you know grab a certain piece of data and and they do that outside of our framework so we yeah. certainly have the ability to move raw data to move files uh, yeah. to move stuff through the server or you can move it uh, you know do whatever you want on the outside yeah. I'm thinking along the lines of something like a Google spider that's distributed across lots of machines. So that your requests for work, go check this site out, very small, but there's a whole bunch of additional network bandwidth involved in actually doing the work. Right. We have, we have several customers who, who do not exactly Google spidering, but that kind of thing, the distributed process, is actually hitting web services, scanning websites. There's, there's a bunch of people doing things like that. Right. It, one of the great things about development kits, a, a development tool, is that people do such interesting stuff with it? I was stuff just going to ask you. Imagine, you know, you know, you hear grid computing and, and you think uh, SETI at home right away, and you, and you start to go down certain avenues, you know, uh, analysis, you know, complex analysis, and, and you start thinking about that. You put it out there, and people start doing really interesting things that that you never envisioned, and All that's right. really cool. It's really fun. Let's hear them. Let's hear about those. Well, one of the one of the cool things that's happening right now is that uh, a company does they they do genetic research and and certainly distributed computing and genetic research kind of go hand in hand. Absolutely. This uh, company is kind of a they have a foundation and they have uh, built uh, a genetic research tool that uh, they they actually wrote in .NET, which is which is unusual. It's a, kind of a, a big win for. 
for Microsoft to have people doing this stuff in .NET. Yeah. And it has something to do with, with finding certain areas of genes and, and how, they, uh, how they code for proteins. I, I'm not a biologist, and I can't go into it in too much detail. But they, wanted, they wrote this really great tool, and they wanted to make it available as a web service to the world. They're, they're a foundation, and they wrote a tool that's great for biologists around the world to use. Awesome. Uh, but in order to do that, they needed to make this web service uh, very scalable, because they wrote a great tool in .NET, but as soon as they, they published it on their website, you know, they could have anywhere from zero to hundreds of people using it simultaneously. Right. And, of course, they don't have a server that can handle that. Mm. So what they did was they took their really cool thing that, that we wrote and uh, their web server, which was written in, in .NET, and they uh, grid-enabled the, the complex part, that, the, the docking genetic part. Mm. So now they've got this uh, genetic tool that's facing the world, will be helping scientists around the world, and they can scale it uh, across a grid. So are they using a bunch of machines in the back room? Is that the way that they're working, or they, did they open it up to the public? No, they're using a bunch of machines in the back room. They're, they're doing it on their own. Awesome. Uh, but the end result is... Interesting idea, opening yeah. it to the public, though. Well, yeah, I mean, a- anything like cancer research or genetic research that in- involves a lot of data, f- you know, protein folding was another one that uh, Richard brought up. Yeah. You yeah. know, those are, those are causes that people can get behind, you know, that... That might they may uh, be into to, to uh, you know working on it. Yeah, of course. Then when when you start moving data across the internet, and and anyone who did city at home knows that you would grab a, a small piece of data and yeah. you know a megabyte or so and run on it for hours. Right. Uh, and you need that sort of when you when you're moving data across the internet. If you're just moving it across. Uh, your your network in in your enterprise, yeah. uh, you don't have nearly that moving expense. So you can do even if it's down to the you know second or so of processing, yeah. it, it can make sense to move it. Yeah, very very cool. We're still looking at any project trying to implement this needing sort of discrete units of work that you not necessarily are order dependent. That uh, you know, actually have enough processing time that their transfer time is not is small enough That's compared right. to the amount of thinking time. And, and sometimes you need to be able to break that work up. You know, like if you're in, mm. and sometimes it's very natural. If you're if you're rendering video, you know, it's in discrete frames, and you can you can tell each machine, okay, you do the first, you know, sixty seconds, and you do the next sixty seconds. You know, however many frames that is. Yeah. Um, and other problems can be a little bit more difficult to break up. And so by, by taking the, 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 the kind of development pro- paradigm that you uh, instantiate objects, classes, what, <clears throat> what we've tried to do is make it very easy. If you can create a class to do wh- where, where one instantiation of that one object will do one chunk of your work, we mm. can handle the rest. Mm. So you don't have to think about, well, how am I going to unspaghetti this code? If you right. can put it in a class... And, and create more than one of those, uh, we'll handle the rest. If you can't, well, uh, you know, good luck to you and, and buy a really fast machine. <laughs> right. But it buy, that's the key thinking here is you've got to get to the point where you can have a call to a discrete chunk of work. Right. That, is, that can be multi-instance, that I can run three of these on the same machine at the same time in any order, and, and their results are all usable. You can get to that point, you're ready to go grid. Right. Hmm. And if you're using your grid for scalability, like those web service people uh, that, that I was talking about, and, and we have lots of people doing different things with web services, those, we're not speeding up any particular web service call. 
You know, a web service call comes in, it runs on one machine on the grid. What they're getting out of the grid is scalability. If, if right. 10, 20, 30, 40 people hit that web service all at once, then if they've got 40 machines on the grid, they each get their results back, you know, in, in the same time that, that they would have on one machine. So, yeah. so they're not speeding a, a single hit up. They're just making sure that it scales well. Yeah. This is a good place to uh, stop for just a second, and I'll tell the users about our sponsor, without which this show would not be possible. Data Dynamics is our sponsor, and they're the proud makers of ActiveReports.net. And you can check them out online at www.datadynamics.com. And we're back with Dan Cerulli. Dan, are there companies out there that specifically offer services for grid computing, like, say, you know, a, a great big company that has like 100 or two or 300 machines all stacked up and ready to go that, that offer uh, themselves as, as a grid? There is one company that's doing that. Uh, they're not doing it on the .NET platform, unfortunately. You might have heard of the SunGrid project. Hmm. Uh, they're right. doing it, uh, utilizing their own operating system, of course, and, mm-hmm. and uh, Java stuff. And it's actually kind of a cool idea. They're the, they're the first people who have said, we will rent you CPUs by the hour. Right. And, and in, in that regard, I really think it's, uh, it's a great idea, and I, and I, and I wish them success. The, the problem is that they've done it in a very traditional distributed computing way, which is really, really hard to work with. Yeah. They didn't think at all about now who's going to use this and how can we make this easy. That's never been a, a concern in grid computing, and it wasn't a concern of theirs either. Because it's and, always been in the realm of academia, right? Right, yeah. And, it, and if we force you to learn, you know, become a Perl expert plus learn, uh, you know, a, a proprietary scripting language, then, well, that's what you're going to do to use our stuff. Right. And, and so that the SunGrid, uh, in the reviews I've read, I haven't done it myself, but the mm-hmm. reviews I've read have said if you can you know, stagger through all that, uh, it can be useful. Huh. So we, we have talked to some uh, people who are wondering if you can make that market in the Windows space. And I certainly hope that they can. Uh, yeah. And, I, of course, I'd certainly hope to, to it be at least one of the tools that they're offering their customers. Yeah, sure. It's it a great idea. It sounds like something you guys could facilitate just by making sure your libraries are well-suited to grabbing onto new hardware easily. Right, and, and of course, being web services based. I mean, I connect remotely to our grid at the office all the time. You know, when I go out to demo to people at shows or, or in their offices, I don't bring a stack of machines with me. I, I connect via web over, you know, to, to my network, and I run jobs on the grid. Yeah, right. Nice. Yeah, it's, 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 it's again, I'll, I'll defer to .NET. It's powerful stuff. It's cool. And I think the the real power comes in that you can just package up all of the assemblies that need to run. Uh, I love that idea that, you know, that you don't have to spend a lot of time tweaking the code on every machine or, I, or on the central machine for that matter. I like to give a demo that I've, I've written where I've got, uh, I use Visual Studio tools for Office and I've got some .NET code that runs behind Excel mm-hmm. and it, it does some simulation and runs on my machine and it's a cool demo but it, but it runs really slowly. Yeah. And I actually go in, uh, live before before your eyes and add 20 lines of code to to that .net code 
and and go from having no none of my code in at all to being completely grid enabled running across a grid. Wow. And it takes about twenty lines of code. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and that's fun stuff. Yeah. We've had we've had clients who uh literally and, and these are these are big companies that are doing real analysis. Their their technical people can get all of their code written faster than the lawyers can approve a license agreement. Oof. And they're literally the technical <laughs> oh, people no, we're ready, ready to, to go. go into production, Just sign. And, and they're waiting on legal to to finish. You know, yeah, yeah. dotting the i's and crossing the t's. Wow, <laughs> that's great. Yeah. What other uh, customer stories can you share with us? Well, we've got uh, we, we've got a bunch. Let me let me try and choose an interesting one. Uh, I've got some more web services uh, customers. Here's here's an interesting application. Not something I never would have thought of. A media company, they, they do different kinds of marketing. And uh, they came up with a, with a great idea that they pitched to a retail store. They said, you, this, this retail store does, does snail mailings. They still you know, mail catalogs to people's houses. Mm-hmm. And this, this media company said, we're going to write some software that you can personalize the stuff that goes out to, to every, every house that you send stuff out to. Mm-hmm. And we'll send them, in the, the thing you, you mail them, a, uh, a map from their house to the closest location. You know, mm-hmm. directions right from from their door to your door, hmm. and the retailer said, "That sounds like a good idea. Why don't we do a test run?" So they picked some American city, and they did it. And the retailer loved it. Apparently, they got really good results. So then they came back to the media and company and said, "Let's do that across the nation." Wow! And, the, media, and the company went, "Oh, whoop. <laughs> exactly!" <laughs> so they uh, bought a bunch of books on threading. And they started pricing really expensive hardware. Yeah. And they were, uh, you know, having their, having their developers start down this path of how do we create a, you know, SMP nightmare, you know, lots of threads. There you go. Calculation That's what you got to do. Building their own ba- library to do this. Exactly. And looking at, lot, you know, they're looking at really expensive hardware. They want lots of processors because they're going from, you know, I don't know, 60 thousand houses to hundreds of thousands of houses yeah and uh then they found our framework and then rather than have to do any you know dramatic re-architecture they already had a class that, that knew how to you know generate a map from one house to one uh store yeah so because it's they, a logical unit of work it makes sense exactly. they did it that way exactly and again that's another company that was up and running very quickly and then they were able to take on this really huge chunk of work immediately for the for the retailer hmm now, if you had told me when we when we came up with this this uh, product that that someone would be using it to you know generate maps from from houses to retails and ma- mailing those maps out across the country, I never would have thought about that. Yeah, yeah, it's very creative. You know, it's funny. I how many times developers get caught up in the complexity, uh, almost indulging in right. the complexity. Oh, there's uh, some, yeah. there's some work for the next three or four weeks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's you know kind of a fun problem to solve. Yeah, I can do that. Exactly. You're you're absolutely right. Some developers relish that. <laughs> They're addicted to code. Yeah, and and <laughs> and some managers say, "I'm gonna I'm gonna pay you to do what?" Yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I had a customer almost exactly the same kind of case. Had a class that did the job, and they were talking about writing this very complicated multi-threaded solution. I said, "Well, why don't you just package it as an executable and run ten copies of it on one machine?" Uh-huh. Yeah. You know, they're all yeah, separate that, processes. They'll run in parallel. What difference does it make? Yeah. That that's yeah, that's exactly the, the same Except idea. That you'll have that finished this afternoon. 
<laughs> you know, right. instead of spending days and trying to debug multi-threaded code, have a good time. Uh, right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we've all done that, right? Spent days and days hoping that bug would pop up one more time because you can't get it to happen reliably. And granted, right. it's faster. You know, asynchronous programming is fast, is easier to develop in in uh, .NET 2.0, and it has its place. I mean, you know, if you're just doing a couple things in the background. There are times when you need it. Um, it isn't a drop-in solution for multi-threaded programming, is what I'm saying. But you, but you know, in those situations where you're you're planning on writing this kind of infrastructure, this is when you have to think, hmm, maybe there's something easier. The other problem with writing infrastructure is if you're if you're at a big organization and you're thinking about how you're going to write that infrastructure, there's somebody one department over who's doing the same thing, right? And he's solving the same problem. In a different way. Or he and maybe already else. has. And, or he already has, you're right. And the problem is you, you've each done it a different way. Yeah. You're not working on a common infrastructure, so your machines can't lend power to his network when you're not using them, or vice versa. Yeah. So, and you right. really end up wasting a lot of developer hours that way. So now I've got to ask you, um, this isn't a free product. You have a developer edition that's free, but what, uh, what's, the, what's the damage here? The damage is pretty light, and, and like most products that, that uh, are aimed at this market, we uh, don't charge developers anything. We yeah. charge for, for running the agents. Yeah, the and our agents work out to about 200 bucks a processor. Okay. So it's, it's a processor model. Uh, and we have uh, a developer edition that we just released, just announced, that is completely free. So hmm. as a developer, if you want to try this out, you can download it and run it. Now, it only runs on, on two processors. We're not going to give you a whole free grid. Right. But you can you know, get, a, get a close look at the uh, development kit. You can actually see some speed up. And uh, you know, depending on if you're an ISV, right. then you can just tell your customers, you know, great, we've grid enabled this. We've already had some ISVs do that. We grid enabled our software. If you want it to run faster, just go get some DigiPeed. Right. You know, the reason I brought this up is because, you know, I'm always thinking about new ways to, uh, uh, you know, leverage the, the resources that I have available to me. And I thought, how cool would it be since, you know, the listeners are .NET listeners. We have, oh, I don't know, 100, 120,000 listeners, something like that. All these .NET developers. If we could come up with some sort of fun research project that we could do with, uh, with Digipede, where people could sign up to be available for a grid application should one come up, then, you know, if somebody wants to, uh, you know, rent out the grid, then we could put it into place and we've got, you know, all these people at the ready to, to, to run uh, on the grid, at, in, you know, in the middle of the night or whatever. A crazy idea. Isn't that crazy? It might work. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is. <laughs> It's fun. You know, we haven't, uh, when, we, when we started the company, we, of course, you know, we're all steady at home people and, and yeah. folding at home and distributed.net. We've done all those things, uh, too. And in, in the beginning, that's what we thought. You know, we've got to find one of those. We haven't done it right now. The architecture certainly allows it. Yeah. Um, but what we've found is, of course, there's a lot more companies that are, that are writing software that already own computers than there are people who are looking for that, you know, how can I use sure. people's home computers. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but certainly the architecture was built to run across the Internet. Now, you don't really have a pricing model for that, though, for Internet stuff, where people can just come and download the agent and be part of the grid. No, if we were going to, you know, if we were going to go into a, uh, a publicity kind of do something for the common good, we'd, we'd have to work out something. Right. Uh, something new. But, you know, it's not, 
there's no commercial market for that. There's no commercial market for SETI at home. Right, right. So no, we don't we don't have a, a commercial price for that. Sure. And but you never know. There might be somebody listening here who's you know working for a pharmaceutical company or a genetic engineering company, and this might sound interesting to them. So right, right, yeah. I can always be reached through my blog, westcoastgrid at blogspot.com. Very good, very good. Always fun to pimp the blog. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's, it's grid computing's been around for a long time, and this is the first time I've really seen a framework for Windows. Why is that? Is it just because it's academic? It, it really comes from the academic world. You're exactly right. And, and the academic world is not, and, and you know, speaking as someone with a CS degree, it, it's not a Windows world. I didn't, I didn't ever right. touch a Windows machine in my True. computer labs at school. I never you know, saw the MSC development kit when I was, when I was uh, at school. Yeah. Everything came from academia, lots of government grants and, and lots of academic projects. So it's all been, from the start, uh, Unix-based, Linux-based, and aimed at the problems that are typically solved using those computer systems, yeah. not at the, you know, just business architecture, business problems. My partners and I all come from using the Windows toolkit to develop enterprise software uh, world. And mm-hmm. so we, we built something that, that people who write software for businesses using Windows can take advantage of. What's the biggest project that any of your customers have going? Biggest in terms of, you know, number of agents? The biggest in terms of number of agents is about 100, and it's at a uh, major financial services company who uh, shall remain very, very nameless. <laughs> <They're>, uh, <laughs> it's unfortunate for us, uh, but right. they're very, very secretive about how they do the things they do. Sure. Uh, but they manage... It's obviously working for them. It, it's working, it's working very well for them. They're, yeah, they're very, they're very happy with it. Um, Excellent. But that's the biggest one. Now, we, we have done uh, scalability testing much, much uh, on a grander scale than that. We're good friends with uh, the folks at Microsoft, uh, the folks at Hewlett-Packard, and we've been able to get into some pretty big computer labs and run uh, hundreds and hundreds of agents. Mm. Um, which is pretty fun. That is fun. We don't, we I'm don't just thinking that kind of hardware. blade servers or one U boxes in a rack, you know, uh, all uh, symmetrically uh, configured. Uh, oh, yeah. have a good time. Uh, it'll, uh, it'll heat your, co- your coffee for you. <laughs> <laughs> this is the kind of stuff Richard loves to talk about. Big machines, big servers. Lots of them. <laughs> it's so fun to go into a server room. It is really cool to go in and you see, you know, just row after row. It, yeah, it looks it looks great. Yeah. It sounds great. It's like a jet engine in there. It's also yeah. very impressive to those who aren't in the industry. You know, you're like, yeah, yeah, come back here for a minute. You know, just take a look well, at this. Yeah, everybody loves it. Whether, whether you know what those machines are doing or not, everybody loves it. Yeah. Usually when you're talking mat- grid computing, I'd be thinking more pizza boxes. You know, I like the system design where I have very cheap 1U, one processor, uh, one power supply, low reliability machines on mass. Right. Where that- so I've got a two percent failure rate. So there's ten, fifty machines down at any given time on a huge block of machines, and I don't care. Right. Because I just keep Google swapping model, right? them out. Yeah, right. that's, that's the Google model, and and certainly now our our customers that have dedicated hardware tend to use two processor boxes. Uh, but it doesn't matter to us. And, of course, the grid system can take advantage of that. It can know, hey, there's right. two processors here. I can run two of these. Yeah, or yes. this thing requires two processors, so I'm only going to run one of those. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, that's, that's really the, the way of the future, some people say, is commodity, off-the-shelf hardware, 
buy lots of them. And, and that's the grid model of, of, you know, you need more power to get more hardware. Yeah. Yes. Well, Dan, um, you know, we're coming to the end of the show here. And uh, usually I ask the people on, on the show, you know, if they've seen anything really cool on the Internet or maybe a, a toy or some electronic gadget, something that you've seen that, uh, that you want to share. An electronic gadget. Uh, I just a bunch of my friends, including a bunch of my coworkers, uh, just got squeeze boxes. Familiar with the squeeze box? Well, not if you're talking about an accordion, yes, but no. <laughs> a squeeze box is a uh, it, it's something that sits on your home network. It has either it's either wireless or or plugged in, and it's a plugs into your stereo and provides a great interface from all of your digital music into your into your stereo. Nice. It's operated by a remote control, and a bunch of my friends also have Harmony remotes, another very cool toy. Um, yeah. And it just puts all of your, all of your music very accessibly uh, onto your home stereo network. And it's, Sweet. And it's very cool. Now, wow. I, I mean, I know this device. I've, had, I've probably talked about it on Mondays. Uh, I have the Roku SoundBridge, which is a very similar creature. You know, it's mostly it's a network connection and a power supply and a VFD display and a mm -hmm. remote control. That's right. That, that, that's pretty much it. And it just, you know, it, it, it's a very simple user interface. But as, as we've seen in the uh, MP3 world through the iPod, a simple UI is, is the UI you want. And it just yeah. lets you have all of your music accessible all of the time. It's very cool. Digipede.com? Is that the... Uh... Digipede.net is one we prefer, Dot but net. Uh, okay. either one will work, of course. Excellent. So go get your uh, free developer edition. Uh, what is the product called? The Digipede Network is the product. Excellent. Dan, thanks very much for sharing with us. This is great. It really sparked my imagination. And uh, if anybody's got any great ideas how we can capitalize on this, why, give me a call. I look forward to hearing that. I really do. Exactly. All right. And we'll uh, talk to you, dear listener, next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Yes, I'm a toy boy. Let me